Hello, I'm Barbara Banda and this is The Model Black, a podcast about equity at work. This podcast series aims to create a space where we can have open and positive conversations around race and difference in the world of work. Today, I'm really excited to be speaking with Sarah Jenkins, who is Managing Director at one of the world's most famous advertising agencies, Saatchi and Saatchi. Alongside her work in advertising, Sarah is a board trustee at the historic Royal Palaces. So Sarah has been a driving force behind the industry-wide Advertising Diversity Task Force. And this task force brings together the most progressive agencies across the communications industry to use their combined energy, expertise and skills to shift the diversity dial. As I walk through the gallery, the pictures all have the same frame. Seems the painters all use the same palette to sign with the name. So I started using that palette to make my art valid, be received the same. But it won't make a difference, cause my canvas just won't fit inside the frame. So welcome, Sarah. Really good to be talking to you today. Oh gosh, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute honour. You know, we chatted before and I know from our chats earlier that you're involved in some really exciting, you know, dare I say it, even groundbreaking initiatives in the DEI space at Saatchi and Saatchi. But before we get into that, it would be great to hear something about your journey as a black woman in the advertising industry. So, Sarah, how did you end up in advertising? Well, I grew up, I mean, I'm going to share my age straight away. I grew up in the 80s, so it was a golden age of advertising. It was it was the Levi ads. It was the gold blend couple. It was a, it was a time when the ads genuinely were as good as anything that you saw uh, in, in the program. So advertising was an incredibly cool, desirable, creative destination. Um, and growing up in Dorset, it's probably one of the areas of creativity I have most access to. Like our, our local cinema wasn't so great and there was no theatre to speak of. So I guess I was quite a creative person. So advertising was very much front and foremost. So advertising was definitely where I wanted to be when I went to university it was definitely going to be the end game. And I did what everyone does, which was applied via the milk round. And at the time, ad agencies would have like 3,000 plus applications. So it was going to be tough, tough, tough to get through. But I was determined. And I'd, I'd always wanted to do advertising. So I was, a, I was an advertising scholar. I devoured ads and I filled out my forms and all my friends filled out their forms. And one by one, my friends started to get interviews and I never did. So I was super despondent, but also just concentrating on my final year of university. And I just had a brilliant, naive enthusiasm, passion. Regardless, I was just moved to London. I would find a way to get my dream job. So moved to London without a job. And I worked two sort of part-time jobs to, to pay the rent. And 
after about a month of being settled in my house, I wrote 100 letters because, again, I'm quite old, no email, 100 letters to 100 sort of small, medium-sized ad agencies saying I was a recent graduate with loads of talent and loads of passion for advertising and any chance there might be an entry-level job. Because I knew all the big guns would be mm. milk brand. I'd already failed. I didn't want to wait a year. So, yeah, I, I wrote 100 letters. And then within, I think, like outrageously two days, there was a, right. a message left on the answer phone. So, again, no mobile phones at my at my shared house saying, do you want to pop in for a chat and a cup of tea? So your, na- your naive enthusiasm got you quite a long way then. It got me so yeah. far. Yeah, yeah. Well so, done. 22-year-old yeah. me, yeah. Yeah. But, and, and I'm really interested because um, I'm guessing you wouldn't have seen a lot of black people in advertising at that time. And there probably weren't even that many black people in, in adverts on the telly. So did that put you off? Did that encourage you? Or was that something you just really weren't aware of? Yeah, well, I guess it was super important context. I grew up in Dorset. Uh, and I'm adopted. So white family, white school, white county, like, and when I say white, I could count on one hand the number of people I was ever at school with who, who, who was a person of color. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I went to Nottingham university, which is a great university, but horribly middle-class disproportionately white relative to the representation of the nation. So yeah, I'd always, I was always the only black girl in school only black girl in my sports club only black girl at university so to be honest I wasn't turned off by the fact I was going to go into an industry that was all white people because that was all I really knew yeah yeah now that's interesting to hear and I can I can understand what that's like because in in a way I've got a similar experience everyone around you is white and that's kind of the world you live in yeah and sometimes there is a kind of moment where you realize that you are different whether it's at school university or at work have you had any kind of such moment gosh I mean there have been bad moments and good moments but I did one of my earliest memories when I was four I was cast as Mary in the nativity play it was this proper like really basic nursery as well it wasn't like the, the first year of, of school it was like a little local community nursery and I was cast as Mary in the nativity so big gun like this is an amazing like this is Oscar winning opportunity isn't it uh lead role and I remember age four saying to my mum and then the nursery teacher that I didn't want to be Mary I wanted to be one of the kings because on all the nativity cards the Christmas cards there was always the three kings and one of them was always black so I had such a limited access to people that looked like me that uh, I just, I, I remember that even though it's like a billion years ago now, I do remember that moment where I know I needed to look like the person that I'd seen on the on the Christmas card. So um, that was a very defining moment. There were definitely moments at school when we would talk about racism and prejudice. You are the one that everyone is looking at because it's you you are the reference so there were definitely some really bad assemblies like terrible headmaster uh who did the one of the most racist one of the most racist things i ever heard was in an assembly with a headmaster leading on it um so there're definitely moments of bad and moments when i felt unbelievably uniquely not lonely but uh isolated mm. in the in the in the moment and even like we you know we've already talked about my process looking for a graduate job I just didn't recognize the fact that as I stapled my passport photo to these application forms, 
I would have been um of the thousands of entries, I would have been a tiny, tiny minority that was someone of colour with their passport photo attached to their application forms. I mean, fortunately, those days are over. You no longer have to show what you look like when you apply. But I guess there were, looking back, outside of the moment, there would have been definite moments where I was so uniquely the only person of colour in a process or in the room. I still am. I still am. Very rarely I'm in a room with someone who's who is of colour. You had those experiences. You, you've got your head down. You've got on with it. You applied. You got in. You, you're, you're working in the advertising industry, and I'm interested to know. You know, some of the research I did for my book suggested that yeah. black women have to work harder. You have to be twice as good. I mean, has any of that played out for you in your time in the industry? Oh gosh, yeah, hundred, yes, twice as good, three times as good. You, you're. You have to work harder because there is there is prejudice. Um, probably when I was younger, there would have been a, a, if I'm honest, assumption that I wasn't as bright and who's the black girl and who doesn't speak as posh as the other people in the room. Like there would have been assumptions made, I, I suspect, because there would have been more sort of racist stereotypes. Now, as I'm more senior, perhaps there is... I feel like I have to prove myself and that fact I've got my job because I'm good and on merit, not because someone was ticking a box. And then there's the, just the continuous macro I'm representing every day. I represent black women and therefore I have to deliver and I can't afford to fail. So yeah, a hundred percent. It's, it is a constant. And what does it look like? So try being better, working harder. Is that more hours? God, I mean, to be clear, people work hard. This is a, this is a, High, high effort, uh, high energy industry. People work really hard, but I, yeah, I, everything has to be a hundred percent. Everything has to be done as brilliantly and as impactfully as possible. And one of my colleagues, one of my uh, leadership peers, the other day, she went, eighty percent's fine." And it was like, "Really?" She was like, "Yeah, you got to chill more. It's okay. Eighty percent is good, and then you can move on and do something else at eighty percent." So I've been doing this for twenty five years, and it was really. It was super refreshing and genuinely helpful to hear someone say 80% is okay. And and I again that that's so interesting because someone said that to me once many years ago. No way. Yeah, yeah well, what, what is this about? Why do you feel you have to overexcel? And yeah. there's almost like there's something inside you as a black woman that says that if you're not, so if you know, if you're not overexcelling, you're not doing more, it, it's just not good enough. But and, and I'm also interested in your response to the 80%. What are you gonna do? Well, it was good. It's helped me. You know, since you know, that was probably ten days ago, and it has. I've checked myself in a really good way. I'm like, it's fine. Send it. It's fine. The email's good enough. Just send it. So um, definitely time back. Yeah, it's, it's delightful. I'm going to stay on this topic of of black woman in your industry, and I'm thinking. You know, we're talking. We're sitting here, two black women talking about what it's like to be black, and. I know that when I was at work, I was concerned to talk about being black, talk about my colour, because I was concerned that people would think that, you know, I'm one of those black people that you have to watch what you say around. So I'm curious about how you found talking about your colour. Yeah, I mean, I th- thank you for um, for, sh- uh, for sharing your book, which I've had a, the chance to, to dip into and spend time with. And I was like, I feel so seen. Like, it's so it's... It, it it's 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 true. You are aware that you you don't want to be the the chippy one or the one that uses it uses it as a reference. You don't want to be black first. You you want to be talented first. So you de- you're definitely navigating it. 
And there have been countless occasions with nefarious, I've been so lucky, I've had so many good bosses, but nefarious bosses and insidious peers where my energy and conviction has just so quickly been translated into aggression and assertiveness and loudness. I'm like, no, it's this is good energy and good conviction. And you wouldn't be saying that to a white man or a posh girl. There's definitely labels attributed by bad people. Very rare, very rare have I ever worked with anyone that I respect where there's been bad behavior or misfiring. Yeah. It's been it's been the insidious characters. And there is sometimes a sense that even those occasional incidents affect you. So there is something, I mean, I don't know whether you feel it, you, you know, you've still got to pick yourself up and get on with it when those incidents happen. Yeah, definitely. It definitely not. Confidence is a superpower in this industry. And anything that knocks you even back 5% or makes you question or reduces your energy or, or yes, anything. Yes, yes, it's uh, it's corrosive and we can't afford corrosive energy. It's contrary to creativity. And, and in your position as well, you're, um, I mean, you're very visible. You're, you know, you're a very senior black woman, possibly the most senior black woman in the advertising industry in the UK. And again, I, I'm also curious because, again, when I wrote the book, I was thinking about, oh, my goodness, I'm putting myself out there. I'm yeah. visible. What are people going to say? I mean, how do you deal with that visibility? I guess because it is visible. Like, it's almost, it's, it. I think the, um, because you you can't hide from it you do lean into it it's 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 almost like the decision's been made for you so certainly being yeah i am i am visibly black there's there's no hiding from it so um it's not it's not as if i'm having to actively choose to represent i think i saw my job as just doing the best i could do mm-hmm. until i got i got i got I got promoted to leadership position as a chief marketing officer. So I headed up new business about five or six years ago. And or six or seven, yeah, a bit longer actually. And I think at that point I realized my job wasn't simply to represent, it was to create change and create conversations and start the dialogue and um yeah, I don't, does that answer your question? Yeah, I think it does. And I love the way that you've talked about you seeing your job now as being to create change, because that's kind of where I'd like to move to, really, to get a sense of the kinds of changes that you're creating in the industry. And ahead of thinking about where we are now, I'm curious about the changes that you've seen in the time that you've been in the advertising industry. And I'm talking here now about the, you know, the DEI space. So, you know, what was it like when you arrive there and how does that compare to the way things are now oh yeah the industry's hugely grown up and we're talking about some i mean there's there's being a black in our industry there's been a woman in this industry like there are in terms of intersectionality and and just a genuine understanding that diversity doesn't mean compromising on talent and that diversity is a good thing and that diversity actually brings good energy and culture shifts in a brilliant way not just by having more diverse people in your building but just having more empathy and human and humanity and how you think as a leader they all make your business better so the, the shift is I mean the agency is pretty much unrecognizable in terms of its ability to talk 
about the importance of diversity and the importance of difference. Mm. It's done, it's probably way more comfortable with gender progress. You can, I know in the top trumps, in the top trumps of discrimination or prejudice or positively positive change, the top trumps of positive change, gender, we're an industry that's really got its act together. And you've seen some really impressive figures now in terms of the number of women in leadership roles. Um, and that's been a long time. That's, you know, the last 20 years in particular, that's really accelerated, um, particularly in the media, the media uh, in part of our industry. It's still got a long way to go when it comes to really understanding the experience of people of color and really accelerating people of color through the through the industry. Because previously we had a challenge with women becoming leaders and being respected, mm. but we didn't have a problem with the pipeline. So you'd have at a junior level in an advertising industry, even 20 years ago, 50% women in a lot of the key departments. There was just a glass ceiling that was stopping women progressing but we are still at the you know at the at the start of the pipeline we're only just getting our act together in the last five years have, have we really been able to accelerate the number of people of color in our own industry so then you just got naturally got fewer and fewer people of color to choose from in order to elevate to the roles there's an article today actually campaign which is our big trade journal and it's still very much a trade bible so everyone would have read campaign today because it's school reports once a year, every agency gets gets a gets a a, a grade or a mark out of nine from the from the editors of, of campaign, and it's interesting how many how many agencies are being called out for the lack of diversity in their leadership teams, specifically the lack of people of color. And part of me is like, well, it's really hard because there aren't that many people of color that you can hire to fill those roles. So it's, it's a, it's a slightly, um, it's an artificially high bar at the moment. I think truly diverse leadership. We're still five, 10 years of a pipeline away to really have a embarrassment of awesome riches when it comes to diverse leadership talent, because we've taken so long to start pairing. It's interesting what you're saying about, you know, women in the first instance. Yeah. You know, when when we talk about diversity and women, people, that's easy for people to connect with, for people to lean into. But yeah. you're quite right. When it starts to become about race, that becomes a little bit more, a little bit more prickly. And I'm also intrigued in what you're saying about this pipeline, because somehow we managed to get a female pipeline, didn't we? So what is it that we might need to do to bring about that the kind of pipeline that you need in your business? Yeah, I, th I mean, I think the the the, the greatest the greatest gift was the fact that more women were going to university. So there were more graduates and then there were more people knocking on the door and impressing at milk round. So the, the, as, as I say, I don't, for, 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 as an industry, we've not had a challenge with, with women being attracted to this amazing mm. creative uh, industry. It's the challenge has been the glass ceiling at mid management level. Um, but then you look at, it's, it's a, it's a, different challenge altogether it's not so much that we're racing to just hire grads I think as an industry we woke up to the fact you can get brilliant people that haven't been to to university and brilliant people that can't afford to go to university so we've got to find different ways in but in terms of the complexity and the barriers to entry they are deep man they are they are deep and they are complicated and the intersectionality of being working class and someone of color all these things compounding where you live, 
how much money you've got, how much you can lean on bank of mum and dad. Uh, there are, yeah, there are probably 10 fundamental barriers that stop brilliant young black working class people from entering our amazing industry. And I cannot stress how glorious and beautiful our industry is. This extraordinary alchemy of creativity and commerce, this extraordinary ability to make unbelievable, unbelievable leaps that can transform a business and bring in millions overnight or transform share price overnight. So it's, it's amazing. It, sh- it, it should be a destination for so many talented people and there are so many barriers in the way. And and when you, you, you know, you've, you've got challenges with the pipeline and then they arrive, how are they made to feel? So imagine I am a working class black boy. Um, how would I feel coming to your business or, at, you know, well, without sounding cheesy, I hope you'd feel really welcomed and appreciated uh, because we have been on a journey the last few years. We we recognize that our desire to have more underrepresented, brilliant talent in the building was there, but the conditions definitely weren't there. And there's an incredible company called Commercial Break who specialize in getting businesses ready to give breaks for people from working class backgrounds. And you speak to them and they're amazing and they're really impressive. And they go, oh, we should do an audit of your business and make sure there's no like little dark patches or shadows or corners that aren't going to be helpful. And you go, well, I'm sure we're not perfect, but I'm sure I'm sure we'll, we'll be a pretty solid seven out of 10. And they come in and they rinse you because they all these things that we do that are so contrary to allowing young people, particularly those who may be lacking in confidence or lacking in the shortcuts to work in an environment like ours, which is still very middle-class, still very white. There are just so many sort of trip hazards. So commercial break are great because they come in and go, you guys speak so quickly on all your MS teams. There is no hope of anyone keeping up. So all you're doing is making it really hard for someone who's lacking confidence to be even la- more lacking in confidence and have it. So that's like one example is the speed in which we used to operate on, on teams. Just really good practical watch outs for us as an agency for how you should or shouldn't welcome young talent that haven't had the opportunities to work in an office, a big glass box office with lots of loud, noisy, talented people and how you ensure people come in soft, with that soft entry, lots of phasing, lots of chance to try different things, different sets of expectations. So uh, I think a, a lot of humility, a lot of curiosity, a lot of transparency, they're all things that have helped us do a better job, not a perfect job, but done a better job on entry-level talent from less middle-class white backgrounds. Yeah. Uh, so that's what one one thing we've done in particular. And then on a practical level, we recognize oh, we we pay very well at mid and senior levels within our industry, but it's 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 pretty much London living wage when you first start and you work your way up. So we have we had to find a different way for people to be able to move to London without particularly for those who weren't able to rely on bank of mum and dad. So um we take real pride at running at big, gnarly, complex problems for our clients. Like we do it all the time. Oh, that's a massive problem. How are we going to, that's fine. Big creative brains. We're going to run at it and find a solution. So we just applied our, we applied 
our brilliant brains to this problem, which was affordable accommodation in London. And we can't afford to buy loads of houses and rent them out. But we were were able to identify an amazing charity called the London Hostel Association. They have these brilliant big buildings, student-style accommodations. You've got your own room and ensuite bathroom. And you've got that privacy, but then you've got shared kitchens and shared living space. Um, So we partner with them. Their model already subsidizes relative to London London rent. And then we we further subsidize. And that allows anyone at entry level or below a certain salary threshold to have much more affordable accommodation in London in a very safe space without the complex or that the awfulness of having a shared house with people you don't know and like shared bathrooms, which must be horrible violation. Um without the heavy duty sort of deposits needed to be put down without having to commit to a 12 month or 24 month lease. So it's just all the things you sort of need in order to have a soft landing in London. And then you've got a mini community as well. So we have four or five residents at any one time staying uh, at the, uh, at the space down in Bermondsey and they look after each other and they look out for each other and it's, it's a vibe. So Saatchi home we're really proud of. That's been a really big unlock for affordable accommodation. And anyone can, anyone can do that. Anyone could, Anyone, anyone can reach out to the London Hostel Association and find a way of making it work for your business. You can package it up and label it and be a superhero within your organisation. Sarah, just hearing about that accommodation alone would make me want to work for Saatchi and Saatchi. Forget <laughs> anything else. The idea that you're getting such um, um, a great start, really, in your career and somebody is sorting out some of the, as you say, some of the more complex, expensive things that can be difficult um, for people from, you know, particularly from working class homes. So I'm interested to know whether you've already started to see the impacts of that in your business. Are you getting more people from working class backgrounds, from black backgrounds, applying as a consequence of that? Give us a sense of how that's working. Well, yeah, direct, directly because we have built an entry level program that is genuine, authentic, um, engineered based on based on the genuine genuine barriers that that people have so we had uh such open as our entry level course we re-engineered it it's not about having a degree it's about being brilliant and creative and curious and bringing like an inquisitive uh energy to what to what you're doing and we partner with an amazing organization called brixton finishing school that has some great reach out and the three people we hired our first cohort of such openers were all from working class backgrounds, all women, and it was all just all on merit. Two people of colour, one who lived in Grimsby. So, like, no, there was practically no way they were ever going to be moving to London without support. But um, what was interesting, they'd all had designer design backgrounds. That's what introduced them to the one forward advertising. One of them's now a strategist. One's become a creative, so not just a pure designer. They've gone it. They've made a jump into a very hard to break into department. And another is a data artist, so working with hardcore data to to help us write our briefs. So I think it's proof not only did we make it accessible and affordable, we didn't pigeonhole anyone, expect them to be perfectly ready to work out what they wanted to do next. We've built something that's allowed talented people to come and then we work out where they're going to be most extraordinary. So yeah, we mean massive tick, Saatchi Home, and uh good begets good. Like if you're doing something that is that smart and committed, all talent look at it and go, that's the sort of agency I want to work at. 
there's an authenticity to it. So it doesn't just attract, it doesn't just attract that hardcore junior underrepresented talent. It's a, it's a pull. It's a pull for all, but I think, gosh, I could, I could talk about this all day, but um, the thing I'm probably most proud of, of the agency is how it's like, Saatchi Home is great because it's scalable. So super proud of it. Really proud of Saatchi Open, our entry level, because every six months, another three amazing uh, talented juniors arrive, but it, they all feel in it in themselves quite small. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, but what I'm so proud of is uh, what started as off as Saatchi Ignite, which is our school's program. So that started off three years ago. We were like, look, the pipeline is literally bust. We've got creativity being stripped out of the curriculum. We've got teachers exhausted, tired, burnt out, kids who've been locked in lockdown for almost two years. Like this is not a world equipping the next generation of makers and creators and thinkers. And we decided that if we were going to really run at this big gnarly problem, we were going to do it properly and do it with some swagger. And we talked about chutzpah uh, and with some chutzpah. So we said, look, any school we spend time with, we are in as proper partners. So none of this speakers for schools. I'm going to go to an assembly. I feel good. The kids will feel good for 20 minutes. You never see me again. So no, it's full commitment. So it's a seven-year commitment with any school that we partner. So it's an immediate release for teachers. They're like, they care and they're in it. They're not going to just helicopter in and out. So it's a seven-year commitment. We rec- we think we're busy. We're not busy compared to teachers and students. Like the timetable is creaking. There's so many forced processes and systems. So we said, we will work to the rhythm of the school. You tell us, give us the curriculum, give us the pockets where you're most sort of challenged and we will work with you in those spaces. So um, we work directly with the teachers on curriculum learning. So we bring in creativity and we inspire with creativity. There's a second pillar, which is around careers, which is a more obvious one. So we're spending a lot of time just explaining to the students what we do as a job. We bring them into the agency show them how to show them they are creative people. So we set them briefs and they're awesome. And then the third pillar is around character. And that is just making sure we are doing everything we can to boost confidence because we know it's one of the greatest, one of the saddest, one of the saddest realities is just how little time is spent boosting and shaping and, and, and injecting confidence into young people in the state school system. Mm. Whereas within the private school system, it's a constant round of being boosted. So that even if you're brilliant, you go and get your degree from the same university, we know working class students will lack the confidence and confidence is a game changer in all professions, not just not just advertising. So Saatchi Ignite is incredible because of the three Cs, everything we're doing, everything's engineered to inspire kids that they are creative people, that they too can work in the creative industry, earning loads of money. It's a very well-paid profession um, once you're a few years in. And we hardwire ourselves into curriculum. We spend a huge amount of time making sure they've got access to us and understanding the jobs. And then we spend a lot of time as well just mentoring and boosting confidence. And we're so excited by it. Um, If anyone is listening, we've built a digital product called Upriser, which means that Anyone can access the playbook. So a lot of the heavy lifting has been done. Right. Uh, and then we'll also work with any interested creative companies and creative at the broadest, at the, at, you know, I mean, creativity at its broadest sense. Uh, we will then also partner a company with a school. 
so they get this beautiful genuine marriage of marriage of ambition between a creative company who wants to do the right thing and a school that is crying out for support but has a really strong assistant principal to marshal it all and you it's sold it you sold it you sold I'm, it Sarah, you have is, sold but, this idea and, and you know I, I can hear the passion in your voice and and again you know I'm, I'm loving so much of what you said you know first of all it seems as if you've got the whole pipeline covered so you, you've got them in school with Ignite yes you sort them out when they come in as graduate trainees by helping them out in whatever they need and then you're having an audit done within the organization so you know Saatchi are involved in the whole pipeline which is phenomenal um you know and the, the idea that you're sharing those um your developments with other people as well so you're not keeping it to yourself which is fantastic stuff and one of the things that you said there that really landed with me as it happened was that confidence piece yeah because you know again I'm reflecting back to yeah I got a good degree from a good university but you walk in and there is a class issue so it's how you you know I love the idea that you're giving those young people the confidence that they need so you know when they do walk into what may feel like a broadly middle class environment they feel they can speak up and be as successful as other people around them. So you, you're covering the whole pipeline there. So wonderful things that you're doing. Is there anything else you're doing that's that's wonderful? I want to give you a chance to 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 to, to talk about that as well, or to to share if there's anything else that such and such you're doing in this space. I think uh, that that's what we are most proud of, recognizing like the existential crisis, and it is an existential crisis the lack of creativity in our schools and the lack of opportunity for people from working class backgrounds. Uh, And just the fact we have, you know, end to end found a way to engineer it. And I think um, it's got to be said, it's born from the fact that there is no lack of energy and enthusiasm in order to help find the fix. Like businesses want to help. Yeah. Businesses really, really want to help. It's just sometimes it's the bandwidth and the heavy lifting to work out how you can do a solution, how you can solve. So I think I'm excited that so much of what we've produced and built is stealable. Right. Because we're one company and that's one school. So perhaps we could do another school or three schools. That's only 3,000 kids a year. If we get this right, it's 10,000, 20,000. So, um, and they, and I think there's, there's two things that have driven what I think is good. Hopefully we've set the bit, we've set the bar. I think we've set the bar with our approach yeah. to um, pipeline. And I think um, there's a, a couple of drivers for, for it. One of them is we have a, we have a framework that we work to. There's a, there's, there's five. What, what do you mean by a framework? You mean, well, you know, it's super easy for everyone to go, right. Uh, DNI, it's really important this year, and then it just slips away. So we've applied a real structure and a st- strategic framework to our approach to DNI, as we would a client's prop business imperative or one of our own. So right. there's, f- there's f- f- five sort of success metrics which have driven the output. One is every- DNI has to be leadership led. It has to. We set the agenda, we set budgets, we find budgets, uh, we can keep things as a priority. So leadership led num- number one job number two job it has to be we believe agency built has to be the collective wisdom and energy and experiences of our people um they they are they are super creative and also way better at coming up with answers particularly if they've had a lived experience so agency built and that's why the ideas are so good uh has to be measurable 
have mm-hmm. to have the data. Absolute imperative. Yep. You've got to have the data. You've got to have a reference and to understand where you're starting and where you're improving or, or going backwards. Um, should be sustainable, should get better year on year. And then our fifth principle is whatever we do, we'll always be open and we'll share good stuff and we'll say when we're failing and we'll just always, and we'll always be public. We'll always say out loud what we're going to do because then we have to stick to it. So I think when you've got those five metrics or those five principles, it's hard not to keep moving forward. Right. Now that's, that sounds brilliant. And the idea that it's leadership led. So someone's got to be at the forefront of it. That that speaks, I think, a lot. So, that, you know, I've met many organisations who are doing stuff, but you you go to the top, people at the top, and they don't know what they do, what's happening or why it's happening. So I think this leadership led piece is, is a very, very, very powerful. So we're kind of getting towards the end now of our, our, okay. our this wonderful conversation. But there is something a little bit personal that I want to ask you before okay. I ask the final questions, because... Okay. Again, I'm looking at you here, looking at you across the screen as a black woman. And I'm also curious about how you found aesthetics, your hair, the way you dress. I mean, how has that been as a black woman? Have you felt any pressure in any of those areas? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't don't know if this is a a audio podcast or a a video podcast, but uh, yes, I've got really short hair, cropped very short. Um, And I think... Well, first of all, I have very short hair because uh, I used to have very long extensions mm-hmm. and very long story. But basically, I agreed to shave my hair for charity about 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it's fine. I'll wear a scarf and my hair will grow back quickly and I can have extensions again within a month. I can do this. So it was a, a super contrived reason that I shaved my hair. My And then it felt so liberating and so easy and I was like I am not going back I am not going back it's too easy and it's and it's there and it's done and don't forget I was a black girl growing up in Dorset I had struggle I had struggles with my hair and my poor white mum had struggles with my hair um so yeah I I, although I had the deliciousness of London and these amazing Afro hairdressers that used to go up and see in Tottenham it was a moment it was a definite moment when I shaved my hair off and kept it short I feel very lucky no that's that's so interesting and this isn't this is this is audio so people won't know that you have short hair and that I have very short hair as well so and I have to agree with that liberating fact of it and black women will wear their hair in all kinds of ways so I guess that that you know the important thing is we embrace all kinds of ways and we but and what I was trying to get a sense of is whether we feel pressure because I have spoken to women in the past who said they feel pressure to have their hair straight to have long straight extensions so some of that I was just trying, trying to get a yeah, sense that, this, very yeah aesthetic of black beauty is that I mean working advertising you're very aware of it because you're representing there is this incredibly easily digestible a version of black beauty that is like that that's great that ticks a box and it and we have to make sure that we're working really hard to represent black beauty in all its forms and it comes down to again this is an industry on a journey but it still doesn't understand the importance of having a hairdresser on set that knows black hair if you have a black actor on set or knows black black makeup if you have a black actor on set so yeah I I talk I can talk a long time about how amazing our industry is but it's definitely still got some areas where it can be even more fabulous 
That's so interesting because, uh, you know, I, I was talking to my brother before I came on here. I said, I'm talking to you, you know, this great black woman in, in advertising. And he said, you need to ask her one question. You need to ask her, why is it always mixed race couples in the adverts? Why don't we see black dad, black mom and black kids? So maybe he's watching the wrong adverts, but I, I'm curious as to whether that resonates yeah. with you, speaks to you or whether that sits anywhere in your... I think we're getting better and better and better at at, at casting. Um, I think we're about shortcuts. We often are telling stories in 30 seconds and we'll make one ad. So you can feel agencies and clients just trying to sort of represent. So the mixed race family is great because you get to, oh, great, we're representing. Oh, that's not ticking boxes, but, you know, that's, that's great. We've got We've got a less homogenous representation. And you do, you actually do see a lot of, um, a lot of, a lot more uh, casting of people of, certainly people of Caribbean uh, and African origin. Um, and again, I think how you explain brilliantly with your book, we shouldn't smash everyone together and not all black people are the same, not all brown people are the same. Like there's, there is, there are definitely some pockets where we massively under index, horrifically so in advertising. But I think increasingly we are getting good representation of people of certainly Caribbean and African uh, origin. But um, yeah, I think your brother's watching the wrong adverts. I think, <laughs> right, I, I think shall give him that feedback. I shall give him that feedback. So thank you very much. I shall. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> Tell I'm him to watch something else. Good. So look, look, we're at the end. I want to ask you though, maybe as a kind of final question. So, what do you want your legacy to be when you look back, Sarah, and you think about the change, the, the role you've played in advertising, the changes you're now influencing? What do you want your legacy to be? Um, I've well, I've just had another coffee, so I'm I'm a bit more, I'm I'm, I'm a, I've got a bit more. Uh, audacity in the system right now i i know creativity is one of the greatest unlocks for this country 120 billion pounds a year gdp through the creative industries and there are there is so much creative talent that is untapped you look at korea and k-pop and k-movies they've come about from a government understanding and recognizing investing in creativity is brilliant for the economy. So I would love my legacy to be that I am contributing to a nation that recognizes and understands and harnesses creativity and the power of talent, creative talent to create opportunities for everyone. Love it. Thank you very much, Sarah. That's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much again for being my guests on the podcast. Thank you also for being so open and honest and prepared to talk about all kind, all aspects of your life. So Sarah Jenkins, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to The Model Black. These conversations mean so much to me and they are so important in helping make change happen. If you've enjoyed what you've listened to, please rate, review, follow, subscribe and share. This helps others to find the show and means you won't miss a thing. If you'd like more information about my book, The Model Black, that Sarah and I talked about, you can find more information about it in the podcast description. 
Thank you.